Lots of things going on in our world and our culture, even and especially with the repeal of Roe versus Wade. I urge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to give thanks to God, for this is, an, like I said, an unmitigated good. But you would also seek the Lord's face for how you might respond to those in the workplace that you will meet and see. How you will love those of a different viewpoint and show them Christ and show them the answer that is found only in Christ. So many people act the way they do, brothers and sisters, because very simply, they don't know Jesus. And if you were to strip Christ from your life, where would you be and how would you think? So let us stand unapologetically on truth that life is right, abortion is wrong. Praise God for the repeal of Roe versus Wade. And as we stand on truth, to do so in such compassion and love that says, and God wants to ransom those who were previously enemies and make them children of God, just like you and I were once enemies of God. So may we never divorce truth from mission and the call of redemption that Christ gives. May we live as a people of faith, constantly looking forward to that final victory, being a people of faith in the unseen, living for that day when Christ will finally make all things right. I love chapter 11 because it is that chapter that gives us all of these wonderful examples of people who live by faith, even in the middle of difficult and, yes, turbulent and violent and evil times. One of my favorite faith stories is actually not in chapter 11. One of my favorite faith stories has to do with a battle-hardened soldier, a battle-hardened soldier who had risen through the ranks, fought in campaign after campaign, reached an esteemed position, and came into a culture that hated him. And we find that man in Matthew chapter 8. You don't have to turn there if you want, but Matthew chapter 8 Verse 5, Jesus, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servants, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. A centurion was a man over a hundred men, a century, a hundred centurion over a hundred men. And this was the backbone of the Roman army, the centurion corps. They were the men who were only attained this position after they had proven themselves as veterans in battle. So these were survivors. These were hardened battle warriors. These were men who were the trainers of soldiers, and they were the leaders of the core elements of the Roman army. And somewhere along the line, this man after had 
fought through the battles, risen to the rank of centurion, placed there in Judea in a culture that hated him simply by the uniform that he wore. And then he had the courage to face the ridicule of his fellow soldiers and the hatred of the Jews to look at this man Jesus and say, there's something different about him. And he approached Jesus. And he said, would you heal my servant? And Jesus said, I will come. But the centurion stopped him and said, Jesus, I know who you are. You have authority. You're able to command. But we're not just talking soldiers and people. You have authority to command even the elements and the sicknesses and the physical ailments in other words, the very structures of existence in order to bring healing to a cripple. You can do that. This crippled man can be healed because I know who you are. You don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word. And you can almost see the smile on Jesus' face and astonishment. This pagan Gentile, now believer in Yahweh, who sees Jesus not just as a prophet or as some Judean rabble, but as the Son of God. And the centurion says, I believe. And then Jesus says, truly with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Faith the centurion believed who Jesus was and what he could do, even though it was not visible to the physical eyes. And faith is just that. It is trusting Yahweh and his promises, believing who he is and what he says he will do. Now, Hebrews chapter 6, sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 through 7, let's continue our study on faith beginning in verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. What we see in this passage is that without faith it is impossible to please God and faith is the trusting and the believing of who Yahweh is, who God is and his word, his promises. And the big idea for this morning that I want to focus in on today is this, that faith gazes on God and waits for the unseen. Faith gazes on God and waits for the unseen. Because faith is not just a passive idea. But it is an active fixing our gaze. And that is brought to culmination if we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, after we get done this little chapter of faith, it says, let's look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So it's an orientation. Faith is an orientation by where we place our eyes and orient our life. Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. And if you're going to draw near and have access to God, you cannot do so by knowledge. You cannot do so by good works, by the family you come from. You can't do so by, by uh, morality or by moral activism or religious observance. It says in chapter 
11 verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. Forever who would draw near, if you want to draw near to God, you must believe. You must believe who he is, how he works. You must believe that he is the rewarder. Believe his word. So we're going to look at two things this morning. The first one is in verse 6 and the second one is in verse 7. And the first one in verse 6 is this. Faith delights the heart of God. Faith delights the heart of God. Believing, number one, who and what God is. Because if you see, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he, number one, exists. That he is who he says he is. That he is the great I am. The self-existent one. In theology, the term for this is aseity. That he exists by his own power. R.C. Sproul writes this. Aseity is an obscure and esoteric term. Yet, that one little word captures all of the glory of the perfection of God's being. And what makes God different from people, from the stars, from earthquakes, and from any other creaturely thing is that God, and God alone, has aseity. He alone exists by his own power. No one made him or caused him. He exists in and of himself. And this is a quality that no other creature shares. People are not self-existent. Neither are cars or stars. Only God has the concept of self-existence. And we must believe that he is who and what he says he is. That God is the causal factor of all that exists. He is the originator of all things with a qualification. He is not causal of sin. Sin is godlessness. It's, it's the great God void. It's the absence of God likeness. Now, not that God is not there, for God is everywhere, and not that it is beyond his sovereignty, because when we talk about sin and evil, we believe that God stewards evil without creating it. In other words, he's in control, and he it's never outside of his sovereign plan. But sin is the effort and effect to ignore or remove God from his rightful rule or deny him the glory that he is due his name. Now, God does not cause sin, nor is sin a component of his character in any capacity. It's not the yin and the yang, the light side of the force and the dark side of the force being part of one of the same. God is unspotted, unmitigated holiness and perfection. And we must understand this of God. Sin is indeed tightly controlled by God. And it's temporarily allowed until the ransoming of his people out of the world is complete. But understand this, brother and sister, that all the sin and the evil that we see running rampant in the world, and we ask the question, how could a good and loving God allow evil in the world? Here's the answer. He allows it out of his grace to allow us to be able to find God by his drawing grace. And after a set amount of time, God will say, it's enough. I'm coming back recreation of the world, perfection, and sin will be done away with forevermore. Sin is temporary. Evil is temporary. Lawlessness is temporary and tightly controlled by a sovereign God until he brings all things together under the perfection of his name. 
He is unstained by it. He is not the originator of evil. But the great joy is that our God is big enough to steward it without being stained by it. Our God is the originator of all existence. And do you believe that? You see, by faith, we must believe that he exists, that he is. We take him at his word. We, we can't see before creation. We can't see when creation happened. We can't see a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. Many things we take on just simply by faith that a historian captured it rightly or some archaeological find or some, uh, or some geological remnant. We take by faith that something happened that we have not seen. But here is God who says this is the way it happened. Will you believe him? Will you trust him? When we consider the existence of God, God is the one who has a saity. He's independent of all things. He's subject to nothing but himself. He is the eternal, fundamental, and foundational being, the source of life and sustenance of all other beings. He is infinite. His nature perfectly transcends all limitations of time and space. He fully and completely exists at all times in every space, but within time and outside of time as well. When we see the infinity of God and also the immensity of God, that his being is without limit, Space cannot constrain or contain him. He transcends and fills all space. That he is omnipresent. That God is present in every point of time with the fullness of his being at every point of time. And the way that I like to explain this is that, you know, from moment to moment, I can't bring all of Nathan into every moment of my existence. I'm limited by my finiteness and by the fact that I am controlled by external factors and my own interior frailty that I might bring my irritation, my joy, my anger, a component, a part of me, but I can't exist at all times in space with all of me and I can't exist in all places with all of me. It's just totally impossible. But God does. And one of the, you may say, this, this sounds like a lot of theological jargon, but one of the blessings of knowing who our God is because he's omnipresent, omnitemporal. He exists at every point in time, at every place in time with the fullness of his being is that when you individual pray to God, you don't just get a piece of God with a billion other voices calling out his name. When you talk to God, you get all of God and he bends the entire being and the entirety of his ear. You have the full attention of God. That's an incredible thought. When you pray, you're not talking to a distracted God or a piece of God. You're communing with all of God. And we have that access by virtue of the Son. God is perfect. He's the sum total of all conceivable perfections. Herman Bavink, a theologian, said, God is absolutely perfect, disturbed by nothing within himself, and unencumbered by anything outside himself. Nothing inside disturbs him. Nothing outside can bother him. And we take it by faith that this is who our God is. 1 John 3, 2. We are God's children and what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't see it yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We're gonna see God. But do you believe that? Do you believe who he is and who he says he is? So we believe that he exists and that he, number two, rewards them rewards those who seek him. 
So faith is believing. Faith delights the heart of God. Faith is believing who and what God is, and it's also believing his promises. Promises of blessing, like towards Abel and Enoch that we learned about last week. Rewards of life, joy, obedience. But he's also has promises of vengeance. Vengeance against sin. We said in chapter 10 that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That we believe his promises of reward, but we also believe his promises of vengeance. Deuteronomy 32 verse 35, vengeance is mine and recompense, recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. John chapter 3 verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on Him. Promises of blessing and rejection of the Son, promises of vengeance. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, right here in the book we've been studying. For we who have believed enter that rest, the rest of Christ. But who does not believe. God says, I swear in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. We must understand who our God is and by faith we delight the heart of God and believe who he is and what he has promised. Okay, that's the first thing. Number two, we're going to look into verse seven. By faith we see the unseen. So faith sees the unseen. Here's the example of Noah. Noah. Now, we need to understand that in the book of Hebrews, Noah is treated as a real historical figure with a, within a real historical event, namely a global flood. Now, we can wrangle over the theological aspects and as some scholars question, was it really global or was it local? But I want to urge you and say that the plain reading of Scripture and the way the New Testament treats the flood of the Old Testament is that of global total flood. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that he says that a flood was brought upon the world. Luke chapter 17, Jesus talks about a flood bringing total destruction. So we have Noah, this figure that we find in Genesis chapter 6, beginning there. And it says here in Hebrews, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of unrighteousness, became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Okay, Noah, found in Genesis chapter 6, and I'm going to read a couple of passages. Some of them will be up on the screen. You can follow along, but here is what is going on. Creation has happened. Mankind has multiplied as has their evil and depravity. And in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man. He's going to destroy the world. In verse 8, Noah says, or God says that Noah finds favor. See, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, verse 9 says, blameless in his generation. Everybody else is going about evil, but Noah fixes his eyes on God and says, I am going to live for Yahweh. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, verse 11, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Noah, here's your instruction. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. This is going to be the instrument of your deliverance. So at this time, there had never been a worldwide flood. There's no storm clouds on the horizon. And God says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring a flood. I'm going to destroy the earth. Noah, prepare for it right now. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. And he did all that God commanded him. Noah believed God, even when he couldn't see what was going on. Remember, faith pleases God, faith in who God is, faith in his promises, faith in the character of God. And Noah says, if God promised it, even though I may not see it for decades or in Noah's case, decade upon decade upon decade, am I still going to trust him? But I trust his character and I believe that God said who he is And what he said he will do, he will do. And so Noah labored in faith. Day by day, raising up early in the morning, rising up, building the ark, going through the motions, trying to feed his family, enduring, I'm sure, the ridicule of the people around him. Noah, why are you building an ark? Why are you spending your efforts on this? But he labored in faith. And he labored, by the way, without any evidence. Sometimes we say, God, just show me and I will do it. Have we ever prayed that prayer? God, show me and then I'll do it. But are you willing to do it even if he doesn't show you the evidence as it were? If there's no fleece that you put out and there's no rain on the ground or on the fleece without any outward signs, just because God says it, will you do it? And by the way, never ask God a question about something that he has stated already. God, should I or should I not sleep with my girlfriend? That's not a question you need to even ask. God, should I or should I not cheat on my taxes? Because then I could give more to your church. Please don't turn in any money as a result of cheating on your taxes. Don't ask questions of God about things that he has stated already and expected you to do. But sometimes what we do is we say, God, you know, there's the Bible, okay, I'm gonna say, but what do you really want me to do? And then Satan will fill in those spaces with all kinds of warm and fuzzies. And then because it feels warm and fuzzy, you're like, God spoke to me, therefore I'm gonna do it. Open God's word and say, God, what do you want me to do and help me to be obedient to what you've already spoken? Help me to be holy. Help me to be righteous. Help me to believe who you said you are. Noah labored without evidence, without seeing the immediate benefits of his labors, and while entertaining ridicule and condescension of others. And in that time, he was a preacher and herald of righteousness, 1 Peter chapter 2 says. And then I asked the question, what kept Noah going? What kept him going? 
year after year, morning after morning, decade after decade. What kept him going? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, doesn't it? Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear. Let's park there for just a moment. What fueled his faith was a reverent fear of God. An awe, wide-eyed wonder, a knee-trembling joy at God's awesome transcendence and loveliness. This is what we, we talk about the fear of God. For an unbeliever, we should be terrified of God because we stand under his wrath. For a believer, when it talks about the fear of God in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, for someone who is a child of God, we're talking about an awestruck, transcendent, glorious view of God that causes us to tremble with joy at his glory and at his loveliness. In other words, Noah never stopped worshiping as he lived. His faith was fueled by his worship of who God was. Worship fuels our faith and empowers our labors. And so many times our faith is weak because we've stopped worshiping. We've stopped opening God's word and saying, God, show me your glory. Show me your loveliness. We stop attending church, which by the way, church, Bible reading, these are one of those God-given graces whereby we gather to cast and our gaze upon God, worship together, and build our faith. Worship builds our faith. Being awestruck, wide-eyed wonder at the loveliness and the glory of God. It doesn't mean to be afraid of God as a believer. If you're an unbeliever, if you're entrusted in Christ, you should be afraid of God. But if you're a believer, you have no reason to be afraid of God for Christ has taken away all of our fears and we are secure in him. But rather, we should tremble in awe and reverence over his glory. If this is a concept uh, that you have uh, difficulty with, here's a book I would recommend highly to you. I'll leave it down here at the front. Please don't take my copy. Uh, but uh, you can find this on Amazon. It's called Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord by Michael Reeves. Excellent resource and treatment about this concept. And Michael Reeves writes this. He says, we should be encouraged for the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant, but rather it's an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent good and true God is and that therefore it leans on him in staggered praise and faith. It's a fear of awe. It's like, like when you stand at Niagara Falls and you, and you see and you feel a sense of wonder and awe. Or one of my favorite things is sitting in my living room and watching the thunderstorms roll in and watch the lightning and the thunder and you sense this bigness of the creator God. Jonathan Edwards actually wrote about this and I found this because this is how I feel when I see a thunderstorms. He said, I felt God at the first appearance of a thunderstorm and I used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself to view the clouds and see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder, which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining 
but also led me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. Spurgeon says, gazing upon the vast expanse of waters, looking up to the innumerable stars, examining the wing of an insect, and seeing there the matchless skill of God displayed in the minute, or standing in a thunderstorm, watching as best you can the flashes of lightning and listening to the thunder of Jehovah's voice. Have you not often shrunk into yourself and said, great God, how terrible and awesome you are. Not in Fear as in being afraid, but full of delight, like a child who rejoices to see his father's wealth, his father's wisdom, his father's power, happy and at home, but feeling oh so little. Here's Noah, day after day, rising to build the ark in reverent fear, in an awe of getting up daily with his family and saying, First of all, before we do anything here, before we cut the first piece of wood, let's stop and remember who God is, why we reverence him, why we fear him, why we sing his praises, why he's worthy of following, and let's do it together as a family. Ham, Sham, and Japheth and your kids, let's do it together, right? Yes? Now let's go. It is the worship and the gaze upon God, believing the unseen, but gazing upon God while doing it that helps us to wield our tools and build and be obedient. Noah believed God and built the ark. Noah believed God and then went into the ark. He didn't just believe it and then stand afar, but he entered into the ark. God shut them in and then they were delivered from the wrath of the flood. It's not just enough that you know about God. Demons know about God. Demons know that he exists. Demons know who he is. They can stare at the ark and know exactly who God is. But brother and sister, saving faith is not just knowing about God. Saving faith is actually walking in through the doors of the ark and saying, I'm going to believe God and I'm going to enter in. I'm going to act upon my faith because faith is active, it moves, it responds to God. And by faith in God's promises, the ark ensured life and protected Noah and his family. When we look at Hebrews chapter 11, every story contained in chapter 11 should be viewed Christo-directionally. In other words, all of Hebrews is about Christ and we should not take Hebrews chapter 11 out of Hebrews and stop talking about Christ, but every single one of these stories point to Christ, point to his fulfillment. That's why they're here, to teach us faith, but also to point us in of the greater fulfillment that is found in Christ. You see, we believe by faith that God said that he is holy, by faith we believe that he is one day gonna bring justice and by faith, we enter the ark of Jesus Christ. And by faith, we believe that if we enter into the ark, Jesus Christ, believing on the cross, who he is and what he has done, that when the wrath of God comes, that we are protected within Christ and nothing can touch us. We are buoyed on the wrath of God and delivered into life and eternal redemption. You see, that image of the ark points us to Christ. 
We can't see the fullness of our salvation. We don't always feel forgiven. But by faith, we gaze upon God and we believe the unseen because we're saying, God, I believe that what you said about your son is true. And I believe that what you said you're going to do, you will fulfill. I may not be able to see it now. I may not be able to see it tomorrow. But if decade after decade comes, oh God, help me to believe your promises. Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. You must believe that he is. He rewards those who seek him, who enter the ark that is Christ. Brother and sister, will you live by faith? And this morning, have you, have you entered the ark? Have you entered into that relationship with Christ? Or are you just gazing from a distance? We are called to be a people by faith that gaze on God in reverent fear and wait for the unseen, being faithful to obey him in the meantime and trusting that he will bring about his purposes in the good time. So you know what? I don't know what the news is gonna hold this week. I don't know what chaos, human depravity, is gonna unleash on America in the upcoming weeks and months. But here is one thing I know. I believe that God is. I believe that God exists. I believe that God, through his promises, has saved me by his son. I believe that Jesus is coming again, and I believe that he has the final victory. Therefore, whom shall I fear? By faith. Let's move forward in faith, trusting God and his promises. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Help us to, in reverent fear, rise every morning and say, this is our God. This is our King. Help us to follow you. Help us to be obedient like Noah was. And Father, I pray that you would grant us strength, that you would grant us grace, and that if there's someone here who has not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would be delivered from the wrath by trusting in you, Jesus, this morning. They would come talk to me, one of the pastors up here. Help us to be faithful and obedient in the world around us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.